Hey, Carl here to say that Music to Code By is now an app called Music to Flow By. Now you can listen to the tracks on your phone with offline capability. The first three tracks are free, and the entire catalog is available by subscription with a new track arriving every month. Just go to musictoflowby.com for all the links. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, a very fine how do you do to you, sir, and the listeners. How are y'all? Many do's and how do's. Yes. Hey, um, I want to jump right into Better Know Framework because uh, it has something to do with Tuesday's show. Oh, okay. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, it doesn't really have anything to do with Tuesday's show, but it's a conversation we were having about solar chargers. Oh, right, yes. And you know how I'm in love with these anchor charger, we call them bricks. People are in love with anchor stuff in general. Like, they have actually carved out a luxury niche yep. in the least sexy, you know, yep. USB charging space. But yep. they just, their stuff's so good. It's so good. And Anchor, A-N-K-E-R. So, they have a 21-watt dual USB solar charger, power port, solar for iPhone, all this other stuff, right? Right. It, it's something that you put on the on your back of your backpack as you walk. Like right. it's that big. And there's over a thousand reviews. 68% of them are five star, 15% are four star, 6% three star, a couple one stars. But but it, uh, uh, what I did see is that this thing charges fast. So one review said, my first test of the panels was on a mostly cloudy day when my power brick was charged in the 26 to 50% range. It charged up to the 51 75 range after about four hours of indirect sunlight using both cables. My second test was on a very sunny day. My pack was drained down to the 26 to 50% range and was fully charged after about four hours in direct sunlight. That's pretty good. It's not bad. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised it just doesn't have a battery pack in it too, so that at least when you don't need anything charged, it's putting the power somewhere. Well, yeah, but then they wouldn't be able to sell their battery packs. Yeah, extra. I guess you buy a battery pack as one of the anchor battery packs, plug it in, you know, yeah. you can make all these things work together. Exactly. It, and you're right, it's big. It like will cover your whole back. Yep. And there's actually a picture of somebody wearing one on their back, but they do say it does tend to get a bit hot, right? Well, it is a black thing in sunshine. <laughs> yeah, and it's also generating, you know, power and heat. Yeah. So. But, you know, solar panels, even good ones, are only 20, 25% efficient. So the rest of that light is turning into heat. Yep. This says it's 21.5 to 23.5% efficient. You think they'd know. You think they'd know. Anyway, that's cool. It is cool. Very gadgety. And I think I have Christmas presents. There you for my go. My kids. Everybody Maybe. gets a solar panel. And <laughs> you get a solar yeah. panel. You Last solar- year it was bathing caps from the La Quinta <laughs> Inn, but this year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who, who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1382, the one we did back in December of 2016 with one Stephen Smith, Never talking about it. business anti patterns, as we do fairly often yeah. with Steve. We always talk about fairly horrible things uh, in the form of. Those uh, 
you know, demotivating posters for don't do this. Right. And Christopher Canode, and this is, you know, better part of a year ago, wrote this comment. Uh, he said, this show brought up lots of memories from past work experiences. And I think he says that in a way that doesn't sound good. Uh-oh. One past manager wouldn't tell us of a problem until many months later when he finally exploded in a burst of anger and cussed us out. I've had emails come from an executive in charge of PR, and I would have to read the email over and over to try and understand it. I knew it was English, but it was nothing I could understand without meditating on it for hours. (laughs) And I've encountered the company lie. I mean, line. I was sold on the amazing environment that one company had that focused on staying up to date with technology, emphasizing learning and teamwork. And I jumped at the chance. I craved the team environment. I was placed on a maintenance team as their one and only developer, and I was in charge of fixing bugs. And I was not allowed to talk to the developers on the main team unless I had the express permission of their manager. I like how you read that. It was kind of like, you know, a uh, Robinson Crusoe style, you know, (laughs) adventure story. It clearly Christopher has been on some adventures. Yeah. Uh dude, I can't fix your adventures, but I can give you a big cup to put your tears in. How about oh. that? <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be one of those shows, is it? Okay. Here we shows. go. So, Chris, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. Fully charged, of course. Because <laughs> we don't like any dead tweets. Uh, let's bring back Steve Smith officially. He is an entrepreneur and official software developer with a passion for building quality software as effectively as possible. Steve has published several courses on Pluralsight covering DDD, solid design patterns, and software architecture. He's a Microsoft MVP, a frequent speaker at developer conferences, an author, and a trainer. He's one of the founders of DevIQ, a training technology company focused on improving software development teams. You can follow Steve online at rdallas.com, that's A-R-D-A-L-I-S, or at rdallas on Twitter. Welcome back, Steve. Hey, Carl. Hey, Richard. Glad to be back. Glad to have you. I think this is like your 10th show, dude, including panels, so you get around. I, I was keeping track of my count for a while, hoping I would be like at the top, but but you've got some guests that have way more uh, times on the show than I have, so I gave up on that. Yeah, mm. may not necessarily be a good thing to be on so much, you know, but who knows? Percentage-wise, I don't think it's that big because you guys have had a ton of shows. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we're staring fifteen hundred in the face here, but you know, I, when I think when off the top of my head, when I started to think about very frequent guys, I think of like Billy. And he's yep. at 16, yep. Rocky's up there too, you know, yep. 18, 19. Uh, so you're not that far off the mark, my friend. You're, you're up there as, as one, and been around forever, right? It's, you've come and gone and, and been on the show on a routine basis. So certainly the, your calendar thing was, was very, uh, a popular aspect of just here comes Steve to tell us about a horrible calendar. Yeah. And this <laughs> is sort of the antithesis of that, right? Now you're not talking about anti patterns. You're talking about pattern patterns. Yeah. I thought, I thought that'd be fun to, to talk about for a change. Yeah. Developer tips. So besides just be awesome and don't write bugs, what, uh, what can you tell us? Well, speaking of uh, developer tips, real quick, I, I actually finally got around to starting my own podcast. Uh, on weekly dev tips that are 
like just five or 10 minutes long each week where I just discover some small tip. And those aren't so much usually design patterns, but they're, they might just be some small thing that might help. Um, awesome. That's cool. I don't know if, I don't know if I even had mentioned that to you two, but there, no, there, now know. you know. Um, in terms of design patterns, there's a, there's a great resource out on Pluralsight that I'm, I'm one of the authors of, but there's like 10 different authors of their design pattern library. And so that, that's a great place to go and look for just, uh, information on, on a variety of the different design patterns that are out there. Uh, and there, and there's a few that I, I wanted to make sure I covered in our show today because, uh, I've, I've been using them more frequently than I had in the past and I found some different uses for them. So I thought that would be interesting to talk about. And your podcast is at weeklydevtips.com? That's right. What or a great you can domain. find it on Stitcher, iOS, uh, podcast app, all the usual places, I think. It's only got six episodes and almost no listeners. So That's um, great, though. We'll, yeah. You'll have some now. That's right. That's yeah. the hope. Cool. So where do you want to start? So there's a design pattern that's been around for a long time called the Builder Pattern. And I've been doing a lot of work with ASP.NET Core, and it's used heavily in, in ASP.NET Core's uh, built-in framework, and, and there's a few places where you'll see it. Uh, and I recently uh, discovered, or actually had had shown to me, uh, a way to use this pattern in tests as well. And so the uh, the builder pattern, you'll see like as the very first line of code that, that gets run when you create a new ASP.NET Core app, uh, by default, it uses a web host builder to construct the web host that ultimately will host your application. Okay. And are you too uh, familiar with the builder pattern? Yeah, so you can see that if you just open up the startup. That's right. Yeah, in uh, in program.cs in a, in a new project. Yeah, that's the the entry point for ASP.NET Core apps, and it will create the the web host using this web host builder. And the way the the builder pattern works is it's a series of different methods, and each method returns back the same uh, type, so that you know, the, you can continue to call additional methods on it over and over again, and it's building up uh, a state uh, as you do that. So it gives you yeah. what what we typically these days call a fluent interface for working with something. Right. And if you look at uh, an ASP.NET Core app, you might say something like, give me a new web host with the web host builder and, you know, use Kestrel, which is the web server, and use my, my startup file and, you know, give me IIS integration and, you know, each of those is just a method call right. and they all chain together. And then when you're all done, you call the dot build method. And that's what ultimately configures for you this, uh, this type and hands it back to you ready to go. So it's, it's similar to the factory pattern. It's a creational pattern. Yeah. Uh, but the, the interface is far more flexible. I, I love the fluent pattern in general. I think that, you know, for somebody who's used to big long methods with lots of parameters and, you know, overloaded functions and that kind of stuff. It's just so nice to be able to chain along these things. Yeah, I agree. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Uh, another place you see it in ASP.NET Core, uh, it's it's a little bit hidden in 2.0 because they they do some of this for you now. But in the 1.x uh, templates, when you do con uh, set up configuration, when you configure configuration, um, there is a configuration builder, and it and it follows the same pattern. Of course, it uh, mm. lets you decide when and how you want to use different files or environment variables as the source of your configuration settings for your ASP.NET Core application. Uh, and it works really well in that scenario too. But the uh, the place that that I've started using it and found to be really cool uh, is for testing and specifically for my test data. Uh, and and I can't take credit for this idea. Someone pointed it out to me a few weeks ago on Slack. Um, but but it works really well. So you could say uh, you're going to write a whole bunch of tests, and let's say your domain that you're testing 
uh, involves customers and orders. And so you want to be able to test things like, uh, do I have uh, a customer and, and are they valid? Yeah. Well, do I, does the customer have a valid address? Does the customer have an invalid address? And if you write these tests all by hand and, and you're setting up your test and you're creating all these objects with their whatever their state might be, uh, your tests get very verbose. There's a lot of repetition. Yeah. Um, it isn't necessarily obvious when you look at a test what exactly is being tested because you just see like that you're instantiating a customer with an address with a bunch of default fields. Right. Um, if you throw the builder pattern at this problem, you can create a, you know, a test address builder, let's say. And, and you could say, you know, give test address builder dot get default. And, and then it gives you back a default address, right? And you use that in whatever test you want. And then, um, if you need to set a particular value on it, you could say like some, you know, with zip code and then pass it in a specific zip code that you want to test. And now you've got a default address with a particular zip code, mm. uh, in a very fluent manner. Right. Um, and if you needed a, a an, an invalid address for whatever reason, you could, you know, have an overload for that. And so you give me an invalid address and, mm. you know, it would, it would be, uh, very easy if later on your rules changed about what was valid or what should be your default or anything like that. Instead of having to walk through and touch many different tests yeah. to change all that test data for all those setups, you would just go to your, your address builder and change it in one place and it would impact all of your tests from that point. Very nice. It, it does seem to just be a sort of declarative approach. You tend to build the methods that say what your intent is. Yes. And that's part of what I love about it for the test, because sometimes you'll have a test and a test name will say something like, you know, you know, the cart checkout should throw exception for invalid address. Right. And then you look mm -hmm. at the test and it's like, create a new address and set a bunch of properties and then, you know, do whatever with the cart and then call the checkout method. But it doesn't ever say why that address is invalid necessarily, right? right? Or maybe there's a mm -hmm. comment or something. Mm -hmm. And so it's left to you as the reader to be like, well, I guess because they didn't put a zip code in, is that why? And, and <laughs> you don't necessarily know what the issue was that, that is resulting in this, this test, you know, presumably being for an invalid value. Yeah. What makes this invalid? Or the zip code is a haiku. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who would do that? I don't know. But you're sort of in a place where it's like now you're counting on someone to write a decent comment to explain what the heck you're doing as opposed to making that your code. Right. And and the builder pattern offers you this opportunity to give some names to these things and, and reveal your intent a little better. Yeah. As well as reducing duplication and doing some other nice things there. So that's yeah. that's why I've really uh, taken to this approach. Um, and it's it's something I'm, I'm using in all my tests that I write now. Yeah. I've been writing tests for a long time, so I'm still I'm still learning new things and finding new ways to do stuff all the time. It strikes me as very TDD friendly too. that be, that same sort of the way that writing the test first forces you to think through that flow. The, those flows now become these method calls, too. So hmm. it, it's it kind of leads you down the right path. Definitely. Yeah, and the the idea of treating your tests like first class citizens, right, and and refactoring them and applying design patterns to your test code in addition to your production code is is something that I've, I'm a big fan of, and I think uh, not enough teams really take their test code seriously and and try to uh, maintain it and keep it at the same level of quality as their the code that it's actually testing. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I can't tell you the number of times in building something when we've gone for a major version number you're going from version two to version three it's easier to just throw the test away and start over hmm. we're yeah, right. actually structuring the test so that those core elements those methods are sustainable one version to the other i think it's pretty powerful 
So you've done some functional programming, and what's great about functional programming is there's no nulls. <laughs> so that is nice. Yeah. It's so a billion uh, dollar we, mistake. Yeah, exactly. So how do we come to grips with nulls? Do you have any tips for dealing with nulls? I do. Um, in fact, there's a there's a design pattern that's just devoted to this this problem, um, and it's appropriately called the null object pattern. Uh, and, and something that I, I wrote an article about probably a year ago um, is that uh, nulls actually break polymorphism. Right. Okay. I like to point this out when I talk about solid principles because uh, the the Liskov substitution principle, the L, uh, basically says that uh, subtypes should be substitutable for their base types. And when they're not, the the code, the way it looks, is you'll you'll be inside some block of code that should be polymorphic, meaning it's working with some type and it doesn't care if it has an instance of that specific type or some subtype. Uh, the, the, the obvious example is your a for each loop, right? And so you're looping through some things, let's say employees. And if inside of that for each loop, there's some check of the specific instance of that that employee, and it says something like, "Well, if employee is manager type, you know, do do something else, mm-hmm. right?" That that's showing you that you're violating Liskov because it should be totally substitutable for its base type. You shouldn't care whether it's actually a manager instance or the underlying employee base type. Um, and so when you look at that code and you and you say, okay, well, this is a code smell. It's violating Liskov. We should try and fix this. Mm. And there's a bunch of reasons, you know, why you, you want to avoid that, but that's, that's a separate topic. And you compare that to the code that you write when you're foreaching through a collection. And now you have to be careful to check to see if that item is null. Right. The, the structure is identical, right? You're still doing a check to see if employee, uh, is not in fact substitutable for the, a base instance of employee. And, right. and that's the issue at, at the root of it is that nulls are not substitutable for instances yeah. in, in most strongly typed languages, especially or in particular C sharp. Correct. Well, that's a good strategy. Yeah. And so the, there, there's a few things coming in the language actually that uh, hopefully will make nulls, you know, less of a problem. And, and of course they've been adding a bunch of things like null coalescing operators and things like that to make yeah. it. So the dreaded null reference exception is, is less of a, a pain and, and rears its head less frequently. Um, but the null object pattern is an interesting approach to this where instead of returning null from, from various methods, for instance, mm. you might have a method that uh, gets a, a customer based on an ID. Well, right. what if it doesn't find one? What should right. it do? Should it blow up? Should it return null? Uh, and the null object pattern basically says, well, what were you going to do with that customer when you got it back? Right? right. If you If you were printing a list of customers... And in the event that you didn't find one, you were just going to leave a blank line or you were going to say something like, you know, the, the customer name was not set or, or something like that. Uh, pull, pull out an instance of customer and set all of its properties that, that you were interested in, uh, to some type of default value that makes sense in the context of where you were going to use it. And, yeah, and then right. a frequent approach to, to this is then to take, Take that instance and make it a static property of the underlying thing with some name, like not set or empty or, or something like that that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Or in this case, maybe maybe not found. Right. And, you know, it takes a little bit of extra work. I'm, I find myself doing that a lot in different ways. Sometimes, you know, adding a, a message to an object or, uh, you know, having a tuple or something like that. But, yeah, that just returning a null is just so rude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and unfortunately, um, 
you know, Link does this uh, frequently when you're when you're working with with Entity Framework and you're you're pulling back stuff. Uh, it's it's really easy to to you know when you do a first or default on an entity. Well, the default's probably going to be null. So um, you do end up doing a lot of these types of null checks. But what you want to do is limit the null check to the lowest level of your of your application, the place where it first encounters this this null, and make it so that you don't have to continuously do these null checks everywhere else and in, in your domain layer and in your UI layer. Um, right. The null object pattern basically lets you do that check in one place. And if you do find that it's null, you can return back, you know, a color dot not set instead of just a null color, for example. Right. Right. Something that something that doesn't just cause so many problems. It, or, I mean, how much of this is just solved by using default values everywhere? Yeah, a lot. Uh, and, and if you design your database so that it doesn't necessarily, uh, default to null in a lot of places, you know, that yeah. can save you a ton of, a ton of trouble too, which I assume is what you were talking about. Well, yeah, that per incoming parameters, I guess if, if you set default incoming parameters, even if someone passes, it passes you nothing or passes you a null, you're going to get the default parameter. Like it, it right. just saves a lot of pain. It's just, again, you get back to this idea of how much code do I need to write because of the dang nulls? Right. Yeah. And, and for me, when I'm analyzing code and I'm helping customers, you know, improve the quality of their, of their code, one of the things I'm looking for is complexity in the form of conditionals. Right. And, and you can easily measure that using, you know, cyclomatic complexity metrics. Um, but a lot of the, the design patterns and the refactorings that I apply, their, their express intent is to eliminate the need for if statements. Right. Or, or reduce them or, or put them just in one spot in the code so that they aren't right. duplicated in many different places. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what the null object pattern and, and a lot of these other null related, uh, features can really help you with because that's a huge source of conditionals is checking for nulls or, or not checking for nulls when you should have, which is mm -hmm. the other flip side of that coin. AA making your software unstable. Yes, exactly. Right. Hey, Steve, give us a moment here to pay the bills. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at JetBrains. Hey, how often do you profile memory usage in your .NET apps? What if you could automate memory usage checks so that they're executed every time you commit a change? You can actually do that with .MemoryUnit from JetBrains. .MemoryUnit is a free unit testing framework for monitoring .NET memory usage. You write unit tests that check your code for all kinds of memory issues, and then run the tests on your machine or in a continuous integration server like TeamCity or VSTS, just like you do with regular unit tests. You can track how much memory is allocated, check memory for objects of a specific type to prevent memory leaks, or compare several memory snapshots in a unit test to see if memory usage is creeping up. Learn more and download .memoryunit from jetbrains.netrocks.com or just search for a package called .memoryunit on the NuGet gallery. And you're listening to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell here talking to Steve Smith. And uh, we're doing a non-anti-pattern day today. We're doing a pattern day and maybe yeah. some dev tips along the way. That's right. Shall we jump into another one? What's next? Oh, sure. Why don't we talk about uh, one that's sort of on the on the fence, the, uh, the singleton, which I think oh. uh, most developers either love or hate, I think. I love singletons. Interesting. <laughs> I do. For me, the, the singleton design pattern... Uh, as described in the, the Gang of Fours book, uh, is is generally an anti-pattern and one that that you don't want to do. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, but the idea of some class that should only have one instance in your application, well, that's pretty common, and that's something that you know, there's a lot of use cases for that. And so there's there's no anti-pattern to the behavior of Singleton. It's just that specific implementation yeah. where 
you say that I have this class and it does something and I want to make sure I only have one of them. So right. I'm going to have this class be the thing that ensures that there's only one of itself. Yeah. <laughs> right. And at one level, that makes sense because now you've encapsulated all of the things that, that have to do with this class in one place. But in many cases, you don't only want to have one of them or you don't want to have one of them that you can't get rid of or that lives forever. Uh, because when it comes time to write tests, those singletons often become a pain point in testing your code. Uh, the other issue is that it, it it's easy to get this wrong uh, in terms of thread safety and, and other things of, of how you implement it. John uh -huh. Skeet has a great article on, on how to properly write a, a thread safe singleton that's fast in C sharp. And it's not at all how, how you might naively approach the problem. It's, it's, it's a pretty, you know, funky solution that he ends up coming up with. So do you two have, uh, any, any big opinions on, on singleton? Yeah. I mean, I'm usually writing singletons when I have, um, simply a lot of methods that don't require state, you know, that all need to be grouped together. Um, to do something, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, data access layer or something of that kind. Okay. And then I just have static methods. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's certainly a fine approach for, for a lot of things. You know, you've got like extension methods that are static methods. You've yep. got other, other types of static methods that don't have any state and don't have any side effects like that touch infrastructure. You know, you, you can use those and, and I don't have any issue, you know, with that. I don't think they have, they call, they don't cause any problems with the quality of the code. Um, the, the singleton pattern is where you need to have an instance of this thing and you want to make sure you only have one instance of it. Uh, and, and so typically what that looks like is it'll have a property called instance or something similar, and right. it'll have a private, uh, local field that is an instance of itself. And yep. when you hit that property, it'll check and see if, if the private field is null or not. Right. And if it is null, it'll create an instance using a private constructor. Yeah. Uh, and then that instance is used thereafter. Right. Only one instance. Yes. The, yep. the Highlander pattern. There can right. be only one. <laughs> there could be only one. The, the problem with this is that it's, it kind of clutters up that code. It gives it too many responsibilities, right? It's violating the single responsibility principle. And the other thing is, as we move into frameworks that have dependency injection and, and IOC containers or services containers baked in as sort of first-class citizens like ASP.NET Core does, there's no reason to have services or classes that manage their lifetime like this. Mm. If I want something to be a singleton, I just tell the services container when I add it to, to add it with a singleton lifetime. And if I change my mind, I can change it in one place. It's, it's a concern of my... Uh, services container, what my lifetime should be of the different services, not something I need to code into each one of those services. Right. Yeah. I think that's very WCF thinking, right? It, that it was just a configuration element to say this particular uh, service is now singleton. Right. And, it, and it's much more flexible that way. And you can kind of see them all in one place. Uh, and it's easier to make sure that you get the lifetime correct because sometimes you want the lifetime to match. For instance, if you're using a, a DB context and it's got a lifetime that is scoped and you've got a, an object or a service that relies on that, you want to make sure that your lifetime usually is in sync with the lifetime of that dependent service. Right. Um, as opposed to if, you know, if you accidentally set the, the DB context, let's say to be transient, meaning a new one is going to be created every time you, you ask for one. Mm. And then you have two different services or repositories that, that use that thing. Uh, you're going to have problems because the you're going to get multiple instances of that DB context and objects that you thought you were tracking are are not going to be tracked across two different instances of a of an entity framework DB context. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you start writing stuff into code when you believe you're a singleton that is really quite evil if that should ever change for any reason. Yes. Yeah. And, and really one of the biggest things that it causes in terms of pain is just coupling um, that makes it difficult to test and refactor your, your application. Yeah. Uh, there, there's commercial tools that'll let you kind of mock singletons. Um, but, but using just, you know, basic C sharp code, it's, it's difficult to code around, uh, a method that in the middle of that method, uh, uses some singleton that reaches out and calls some database, right? That, that method is now very difficult to test. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And it'll hunt you down later. Yes. And I guess the, case, the question is, how often do we really need this anymore? Especially the, the demands that are made on us for software. Like, this seems like a bad choice in most cases. I will admit that I don't, I don't see singletons nearly as often now as I did several years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of that, I think, is the, just the way that we're building applications to, to support many concurrent users and things like that. Um, and it could just be that they're the ones that are really necessary are kind of baked in under the covers. Yeah. So I was thinking singletons are no longer our code responsibility. These, this is part of our platform now. Right. Right. Yeah. So there, there are things that have singleton lifetime for your application in ASP.NET Core, but those aren't necessarily things that you, you needed to set up yourself. Those, right. they, those are built into the framework or the platform. Right. It's just sort of moved, moved away from us now. And that's probably a good thing. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to announce I've discovered a new pattern. Ooh. The simpleton pattern. Ah. <laughs> Every method is a wrapper around system, not implemented exception. <laughs> <laughs> I've met that app. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably called the aggravation pattern, more likely. <laughs> Whose idea was it to to do that? I mean, come on. Of course, there's no implementation. All right. Well, anyway, I know that it's important for testing. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Uh, Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM, state controllers like Redux and all that. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. You can check it out and test it for free by getting it on GitHub. And learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Greg Brewer. Congratulations, Greg. Yeah. I'll clap for you, sir. And Greg just won the D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends over there at DevExpress, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member chosen at random. But you have to sign up to win. Okay, Steve, it's your turn. I can't remember what you said last time, but uh, you probably do. What are you going to buy with five grand? Uh, I know last time I've said things like uh, put it down toward a Tesla, but I'd, I'd need to win a lot of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think uh, 
Right now, I've been hearing about these ultra-wide 4K monitors, and I've got most of my setups have a, a pair of, of 24 or 30-inch monitors, uh, but it's still kind of a, a pain to to use them and set them up. Uh, I mean, it's it's really a first-world problem, but I, I am looking at these uh, ultra-wide 4K monitors and thinking, wow, wouldn't that be nice if I just had all that together? And, you know, you could probably even stack two of those things vertically and not have it be too crazy, so... I'm looking at those, and I figured they'd be more expensive, but they're they're actually pretty cheap. They're that fairly reasonable. That, yeah, cheap. they wouldn't put that big a dent in the in the five k. So, um, so you'd have my, to buy four of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could you do a two by two matrix so you work the curve together? Yeah, eventually you'd get to the point where it's almost like a virtual reality thing where you're you're inside like uh, like some of those flight simulator uh, rides that you get on that have the big curved thing, and right. it just kind of looks like you're actually you know inside the the vehicle or whatever that would be interesting well richard is it possible are there video cameras out there that can drive two of those things i don't know i mean it depends on the monitor yeah. all the curve like there's no i have not found a true curved 4k display being 38 40 by 2160 and the and the biggest of them i think i have it which is that 43 inch dell which i still adore like my favoriteest monitor in the whole world but LG makes a 38-inch curved ultra-wide that's 3840 by 1600. Hmm. So it's a little because that's how you get that 21 by 9 proportion that it's a little shorter on the top to up and down pixels. Right. But ah, that's so pretty. You'd need a custom mounting system for it, but I bet you, I, I which would probably cost at least as much as one of the monitors. Hmm. But I think a two by two matrix of that. So that you were, you know, seventy nine eighty by thirty two hundred. That's a lot of display. Yeah. What are they using to connect to these things? Because it can't be HDMI. Because that it's can't display, handle it. It's, it's got to be DVI display. Okay, DisplayPort's got the higher resolution. Yeah, you all can right. actually HDMI does support four K, but it doesn't support it well, and DP supports it painlessly. So you want DP. It's just okay. you, a lot of HDMI implementations are thirty hertz four K. And that sucks. Like, don't do it. <laughs> right? But DisplayPort gives you the 60 hertz. And yeah, so I was, you know, the crazy thing about DisplayPort and HDMI is that HDMI is sort of the open, or DisplayPort is the open specification. HDMI is the restricted specification, but they are fairly permissive with the license around it. And so, and in every rate, DisplayPort's better. The plug can is easier to handle. It's locking. It's got a better signal. It does daisy chaining. But because it's not the commercial one, uh, the there's still monitors made without it. So yeah. I I didn't want to be a DisplayPort snob, and still I until I started really playing with 4K, and now I'm a DisplayPort snob. Yeah. Right, well, okay. Hopefully it's not the Betamax of uh, connectors. Well, it doesn't <laughs> seem to be because you are seeing it on a lot of. Of video cards, like the video right. cards tend to, video cards now tend to have two or three DisplayPort connectors and one HDMI. Yep. And that gives me right. confidence that like DisplayPort is winning. Yeah. Uh, it all depends on the monitor. Cheaper monitors tend to have only HDMI, not DisplayPort. Sure, sure. And But none of the monitors you're talking about here, my friend, are cheap. These are $1,000 plus monitors consistently. The other thing I would I would love to get is uh, with my leftover money would be a, one of these quadcopters with the uh, the nice uh, HD video camera underneath and a gimbal. Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't know what those run. They're probably a couple thousand too for a as really good much one, but, as uh, you want to spend. Yeah, they can get yeah. expensive. Yeah, you could spend well past five grand if you want. 
I, for my 50th birthday, got a DJI Spark, which bare bones is like 500 bucks. Well-dressed with all the stuff you're actually going to want is closer to $1,000. Hmm. Nice. I have one, too. I have like one of the old ones, but uh, the only reason I don't fly it as much is I'm just worried about people shooting them down. Mm. <laughs> that is really an American phenomenon, my friends. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. My concern for flying my spark up on the coast property is it being attacked by eagles. <laughs> <laughs> you would get some awesome video footage from that, though. Yeah, except for that part where I have to fish it out of the ocean. It's awesome. <laughs> I have seen video footage from a drone being attacked by an eagle. Where did yeah. I see that? Yeah. Uh, Laurent Bignon had that happen to him. Yeah. Yeah. And they, yeah, the raptors apparently do not like these things. So. Right. They take them right out of the sky. So I don't know if it's, I'm more concerned about the raptor or the dog, but neither one of them like it at all. The yeah. dog, <laughs> until I fly it away from me, the dog is going nuts. Yeah. Shall we drop back into patterns? Uh, you have talked about the strategy pattern before. Is there sure. anything new to say about that, or should we just revisit it? Because it is an important one. I, I don't know that there's a whole lot new to it, but it is one that I, I think a lot of developers that are learning about dependency injection don't necessarily realize that that is the same thing as the strategy pattern. So I yeah. think it's worth at least mentioning that. Let's do that. The other thing I see sometimes that uh, developers make the mistake of is when, especially when they're working in domain-driven design uh, or they're, they're working with entities in particular. Uh, and, and so your entity is, is something that has an identity that you're generally persisting to and from a, a data store or the database right. is when they find that they're in that entity and they need to do something with uh, some, some resource that they don't have access to, mm. they want to inject a dependency into that entity so that they can go fetch that, whatever that resource might be um, or, you know, create a service that they can do something with. And the, the problem with that is if you're using constructor injection, which is, you know, the most common, uh, it makes it really difficult for you to work with that entity at that point. You can't fetch something with entity framework that, you know, you pass it an ID and entity framework needs to create one of these. And, oh, by the way, inject into it some service that you've now said you need. Um, entity framework doesn't know how to do that. Hmm. So a, a better approach is to avoid using dependency injection on your entity types and instead have those types, if they need some extra resource for something that they're trying to do, they can certainly take that in as a dependency on a, on a parameter level. So for a particular method, if it needs some service, you can pass in an instance of that service. Um, or what uh, I like to use is the domain events pattern, which we could also talk about, uh, where yeah. the object simply raises an event and some other handler uh, is going to fire in response to that event. And those handlers can have dependencies injected into them because they're going to be created by your IOC container typically. And so then the, the actual work that is in response to some event uh, then is moved out of the entity and into this handler instead. Hmm. Okay. And it's really about decomposing validations or whatever specific things you want to know into a form that allows reuse and reorganization without rewriting. Yeah. Um, also, it's it's about testability and, mm -hmm. and some separation mm -hmm. of concerns and, and keeping things really focused on on one thing at a time. So, you know, by having uh, a very common occurrence in, in software, especially as it gets bigger and more complex, is you've got the case where, you know, the customer comes with a requirement and they say, hey, when the user, you know, checks out the cart, we should, you know, decrement our inventory. 
Right. And you say, okay, and you code that up. And then they say, oh, and uh, I forgot, we should also uh, ship the thing to the customer. Like, oh, right, sure, of course, we should do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and save the order. Okay, yes, and and save the order. Oh, and we need to send a notification to the customer that, you know, that they did that. Oh, right, yeah, we'll add that too. So now in your checkout method that started out really simple, you now have like five different things that it has to do that are all just right there in that method. And any type of dependencies that those had, you know, you need to get to the the e-commerce service that you use and your database and your email system and whatever else. Those are all having to be injected now into right. that, that object or that method. Uh, so it can do all this work. Another mm-hmm. uh, approach when you use domain events is you could say, okay, well, when the user checks out, let's save the state and say, yes, okay, they've, the, the cart is now in a checked out state or, or create the order and save the order. We'll do, we'll do the persistence side of it. And then we'll just raise an event that says an order was created and here's the details. And now all the other you know, follow-on th- activities that need to occur in response to a new order being created – are, are just done as event handlers. Mm-hmm. And each one can be its own specific single purpose uh, thing. And it can have whatever dependency it needs. But when you look at one of these event handlers, you know, you've got something that like sends an email to the customer when they've checked out. It's like 10 lines of code. It's a super simple little thing. It's easy to test. It's easy to, you know, talk about what it's doing and whether it's doing it correctly. And it really helps decouple the the complexity from the checkout method to, you know, this, this little simple thing that just Mm. does one thing. Right. Mm. Contained in contained properly so that it can be tested, can be modified. I mean, you get more into that concept of a workflow engine, but without actually going down the evil workflow engine path and into, it's just codified nicely. Yes. Yeah. And and it works, it works really well for, for those types of scenarios. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're, if you're working in your system and, and you've got requirements from the user that says, well, when, this happens, this other thing should, should happen, or we should do this other thing. Um, that, that should perk your ears up and say, oh, maybe that's an event. Hmm. Maybe I should just respond to that event. Right. Right. Yeah, you, you have more choice there. No, and, and it's one of those ones, is you're probably doing this if you've ever built software that you actually wanted to make maintainable and modifiable in a non-evil way. It's just good to know the pattern around this as well, and, hmm. and that there's a couple of gotchas here and there. that You really have that sort of, I've always used the term, you have the the sort of strategy manager and the concrete strategies, right? right. You know, the, the, this, for this particular case, this is the order of validation I want. And then here are each of the validators. Yeah, sure. Sure. And that actually sounds like another pattern that I wanted to talk about, which is the rules pattern. Oh. Um, and so the, the rules pattern is, is another one that you'll find out on Pluralsight. If you want to learn more, um, I did a, a quick thing on it there in their design pattern library, but it's, it's a way to help follow the open-closed principle where yep. let's say you have a method that is determining whether or not someone qualifies for a discount, let's say. And initially, it's a pretty simple rule. It's something like, oh, well, if they've you know ordered more than $1,000 from us, then we'll say that they qualify. Right. And then – you know, next week the the sales team comes up with a different rule for you know these these folks, and they say, well, also if they live in this you know zip code, and then the following week they say, well, also if they you know did this or that or the other, right? And oh, if if they've got the platinum credit card, yeah, let's put them. And there they too. didn't get the discount last month, and you know, and on and yeah, on and on. Yeah, exactly. And so now your you know does customer qualify for discount method that started <laughs> out as like a simple you know return this boolean expression uh, is you know twenty lines long with a bunch of nested if statements to to kind of see how this thing works. 
And every time a new rule comes in, you're having to change that method. And that's breaking the open close principle, which says that this, this method should be open to extending its behavior, but closed to you having to actually modify the source code in order to right. get that new behavior. And so what the rules pattern does is it says, well, let's just create for each one of those cases, let's create a rule, uh, a, a class that, mm. that we can evaluate on its own. And then the, you know, does the customer qualify method becomes just something that loops through a set of these rules and checks right. to see, you know, whether any of them apply. And, and if, if one of them does, then we say, yes, they qualify. And if it doesn't, then, then they don't. And it's very simple, yeah. um, to code one of these things up. And then once, you know, you, once you have that in place, a new requirement comes in, all you have to do is create a new rule instance and, and add it to the collection of rules. Yep. And you don't have to touch that method ever again. The, you know, it does customer qualify for discount method. It's now closed to modification, but you can keep on extending what those rules are. Yep. Any thoughts on managing things where rule order matters? Like this rule only applies if these other rules don't apply? There's a few different strategies you can do for that. Um, one of the simplest ones is to just put a sequence or, or priority on right. each one of those sure. rules. And then when you, when you do your loop, you just fire through them in rank order. Um, that's actually how ASP.NET Core works with filters. Uh, mm, right. you can specify the, the order of a filter. And, and if you don't, it just defaults to something. I think it's a thousand. Uh, and so then when, when your filters, you know, if you have a bunch of filters on one method, let's say they will run in the order of that order property. And, and if they, if there isn't one, then it's just whatever order that, that it ha they happen to get added. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's just one of, one of those challenges when you separate all of these things is that you can run into those conditionals, but you, you just have to think about it carefully. And it is right. far more scalable, reliable, and even testable to run through all the scenarios and say, what rule orders are we going to get? Sometimes you get yep. some surprises from that. Sure. And there's different types of rules like that. Like in the case that, that I was just describing, maybe the the rule the, the the overall rule should be like if they qualify for any of these rules then then they qualify um, but sometimes it's not that that cut and dry right sometimes it might be what is their discount right. and in that case frequently the the solution is well their discount is whatever their best discount would be based right. on all the different programs they might qualify for and so you may you might have to run through every single rule and it doesn't matter what order and then just find the the maximum discount that they would qualify for. And that's what you return. Hmm. You want a closing rule that decide that does that iteration and then say at the end of that iteration says, okay, now walk through all of the discounts he's got. This yeah. is the highest one. It's the one you use. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what would be inside your, your main, you know, calculate discount method that, right. would, that would be running through all the rules. Do you have a position on, third-party rules engines versus coding this yourself in a, in a rules pattern? For the rules pattern, I'm assuming that you would be coding it yourself, right? It's, yes. it's usually very, very simple. I, I don't have a rules engine that I, that I recommend or that I, that I have much experience with. So um, I have written my own simple ones many times, and, yep. and they usually do the job for me. Um, I, I used to be familiar with some, some enterprise ones, but it, my, my experience with them is over five years old, so I won't go there. Certainly, you can make it a service, though. You know, and then you can update it independent of your app. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. It is one of those interesting slippery slow things where you hit a certain level of complexity where it's like, should I have farmed out this plumbing code to someone else? And at the same time, it's like, because you never start off complicated enough to feel that way. Yeah. Right. Right. And then, and then your question is, well, is it going to take me longer to wrap my head around how this implementation works yes. and realize yeah. whether or not its limitations are going to be showstoppers for me? Right. Or should I just write a loop that checks to see if these things work? And, and if, if all you need is the simple loop, then do it yourself. Mm. But if you know that you're going to need a lot more than that, 
uh, and and you have a lot of complexity in terms of the sequence and priority and and whatever, um, then then sure, there's there's commercial tools that can help you with that. Yeah, I think it's a, it is a very interesting discussion, and, and and I mean in most cases I've found maintaining your own was less painful. There I found very few cases where we went to a rules engine and we were actually happy. It sounds like a you're inviting a lot of complexity when you have that much, you know, and you're you're actually using a rules engine. Yeah, because your needs are different. I think if if you're if you're a customer a customer of a of a rules engine manufacturer, let's say, uh, you have a very specific need in a scenario like the ones we've just right. discussed about discounts or what have you, and you only need this rules engine to do one relatively simple thing, right? right? Uh, implementing the rules should be like implementing an interface or a base type and running through the rules should be trivial, right? It should be a, a tiny little loop that says, mm-hmm. you know, does one of these qualify? Um, but if you're the, the manufacturer of the rules engine, your job to try and sell this thing is to give it all kinds of enterprise features and bells and whistles. Right. And that's going to take the shape of complexity. Um, exactly. and so the person that has a relatively simple need is probably going to be overwhelmed by all the things that, that you bring to the table. And so that's, that's the real, the real challenge to it, I think. Well, the question comes to, you know, let's take the discount example. It's like, I want a non-programmer to be able to add new discounts. And that's one of those slippery slope things right. where the basic mechanism is not that hard. Putting a UI over a rule set, putting a validator over a rule set. Okay, when it's just, if you've been a customer for five years, you automatically get a 10% discount kind of thing. Fine, but it's bit by bit, they ask for more and more and more. And at some point, it's like, it's just worth coding it. And yeah, it's a developer yep. problem. Right. How often are we really going to change discounts? Right, yeah. And if, if you're... A big retailer, you you probably do have you know folks that aren't developers that are in charge of this that need to be able to do this quickly. In yeah. that scenario, you probably want a commercial rules engine that can offer you the UI to to let you manage these things in an, in a, a nice user interface. Maybe that's the gauge right there. The moment you need to build a UI for your rules engine, stop. <laughs> yeah, think right. carefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would I would tend to agree with that. Yeah, I think it's a good line. I'm glad we got there. That's really interesting. It's like, that's the line. There it is. So there's only about 10 minutes left in the show, and and we haven't talked DDD yet, which I know you're a huge proponent of. Yeah, we've done some great shows with you on it. Yeah. Is is there uh, anything that we can do in 10 minutes there? Oh, sure. Um, there's a DDD pattern that I'm a big fan of these days, which is the specification pattern. Um and it works really well with uh, the repository, which is another DDD pattern that's super popular right now. Yep. Uh, but but not too many developers that I that I work with uh, are familiar with specification. So um, we okay. can talk about that for a couple minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The uh, the idea with the specification. Uh, well, let's let's back up and talk about repositories for just a second and some of the problems that you run into. Okay. So a lot of times when you have a repository, which is your your data access abstraction. Uh, you, you have a couple of choices for how to make it queryable in a flexible manner. And so one of those choices would be that you're going to just have your list method return back an iQueryable. And then anything that calls this repository just, you know, sends it whatever Lambda expression it wants to try and, you know, get the data in the shape that it wants. Uh, and there's the problem with that is that it tends to leak out your abstractions from your data layer out into your UI layer and your business layer. And things that compile just fine can break at runtime right. um, because of the fact that Entity Framework, if that's what you're using, maybe doesn't know how to translate something that that compiles just fine in C Sharp as a link expression. You end up doing dot two array. <laughs> yes, yeah, dot two array, dot two list, yeah, and then you end up doing all the work in memory, which yeah. which is fine if that was where you had to do the work anyway because Entity Framework couldn't translate it. But right, right. Um, 
I'm not a big fan of returning iQueryable. I like to make sure that the data layer does its job and works with any framework within the repository. And mm-hmm. then what it returns back is in memory every time. So there's no question and developers aren't wondering whether or not right. this query is executed now or later or when. Yeah. Um, but then your, your follow on problem then is, well, okay, well, how do I then allow for many different ways to query this data? And so, uh, an easy approach that doesn't scale very well is to just keep on adding methods, right? So you've got mm-hmm. a list method and you've got a list by country method and a list by model method. And, yeah. you know, every different possible parameter you might need a list for, you create another method. And eventually your repository just has dozens of methods on it for all the different ways you might list. And that's, right. that's obviously not very efficient either. Or you just say, well, okay, instead of returning queryable, I'll just let my list method accept in a Lambda expression and inside the list method, I'll use that as my where statement and that should work fine. Hmm. The nice thing about that is that it doesn't expose back an iQueryable and, and give you a question of whether or not the, the query has been executed yet. You know, you'll still execute it before you leave the repository. Um, but you're still left with all the problems that you had before of all of that expression logic is now scattered around your application. There's no easy way to test it right. within the repository. All you know about the repository is that whatever they send in is what we're going to put on the where clause mm. and hope that it works. So the way the specification pattern addresses those issues is it gives you a class that is a, a query expression. Um, and so you can name the class, which is one of the big benefits. So if you had previously, uh, you know, get all active customers by geography, um, you could have a specification called customers by, you know, active customers by geography specification. And that specification encapsulates that query logic and it has that, that, uh, link expression baked into it. And you can write tests just against that specification all by itself, uh, using in memory collections, just, you know, lists of, of customers, let's say and verify that it works correctly uh, before you ever have to worry about how it works with your actual data source. Hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. Then you can you can code up your repository so that instead of taking in a uh, an arbitrary expression, you just accept a specification as your parameter to your list method. Right. And so you can pass in whatever named specification you want um, to those. This is really great because you'll probably have like a specifications folder in your uh, your core project. And in there, you'll have this, you know, uh, list of all the different queries that, that you typically use. And your developers will reuse these because they'll see like, oh, I need an active customer from geography. There's the specification for that. I'll use that. Mm. Whereas what they would have done before is they would have said, oh, I know we're doing this somewhere. Let me go find where up oh, here it is. Let me copy that link expression, paste yeah. it in over here. Right. And now you've got this duplicate logic of how you're doing the query. And mm. one of them is going to change later on and the other one's not. And now you've got a bug. Yeah. The other thing that uh, I like to do in the specification, especially with when I'm using entity framework is... A common problem with EF, especially with EF core, because it doesn't support lazy loading, is making sure that you're pulling in all the data that you need. Because if you say, give me the customer and the customer has a, a collection of orders, unless you tell it to, you know, eager load the orders collection, it's going to be null. And so right. if you're trying to display the customer with their orders on the page, um, you have to make sure that inside of your repository, somehow you're telling it, oh, also dot include C such that C dot orders, right? And that'll tell any framework to also join the orders collection in and, and pull that in with the customer. Yeah. Um, your specification can include that logic. So you can have uh, the includes uh, expression inside the specification. And so the specification can now not just say what the query is, but also what that should pull back. And usually those things tend to go together. 
uh, in my experience. And if, if they don't, you could just have, you know, two specifications or you can write the specification in such a way that you can uh, tack on include statements to it, which I often do. Uh, and this makes it so it's very easy for you to control not just the, the query and the filter, but also how much data am I pulling back as, as far as subtypes and related navigation properties uh, when I'm making that query. Yeah, very good. Do you have examples of these patterns on your website or anywhere? Uh, I have some, um, again, the specification patterns covered in Pluralsight's design patterns library. Uh, I talk about it there. And then I've also got uh, an ebook for Microsoft that, that uses some of these patterns in its sample app. So uh, I'll send you the link for the show notes, but it's, uh, it's actually out on the um, microsoft.com slash learn slash net slash architecture page. Okay. And, and there's uh, an ebook out there that I wrote on architecting ASP.NET Core applications with Microsoft Azure that covers a lot of these patterns and, and the sample that goes with that uh, also covers, covers this stuff and kind of shows how to do some of these things. Very cool. Steve, thanks very much for spending this time with us. It's been great. It always is. Thanks. I love being on the show. So thanks for having me again. You bet. Always a pleasure, my friend. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a